Welcome back to Back Chat with Joe Costigan. This week I spoke to Senator Lim Ruan on how the Shannon works, why she wants to decriminalise drug use, whether or not working class areas are over-policed by the Gardaí, and how to remove barriers to education. So thanks so much for talking to me today, Lynn. I really wanted to get someone on to talk about the Shannon because I think that a lot of people don't fully understand its role in the Oireachtas and what a senator's job actually is. And I think a lot of the time, senators have quite a narrow view of society because of the way people are elected and the type of people who get elected so I want to get someone on who's more of a voice for working class people and I thought there's no better senator to do that than you so thanks for coming on and talking to me about it. Thank you, you're very welcome. So I think a big criticism of the Shannad is the way that senators are elected and who can vote so can you explain a bit about how that works you know how do you get a vote in Shannad elections? Yeah, so um, there's several different panels. Some of them are vocational, and then you have the two university panels, um, which is the three senators that would be voted in by the likes of the NUIs and UCD. And then you have the Trinity panel, which I'm on, which is Trinity graduates. The, the history of that goes way back, I suppose, to um, the Queen's rule and Trinity being a Queen's university. So we're originally those three seats being carved out for Trinity was around having positive representation. Um, within within Irish Parliament. And obviously that's evolved over the years, um, but how many are voted in, who votes them in has remained the same. And then the other panels, um, you have like a, an, a, an agricultural panel, a labour panel, an educational panel, and those panels are made up of votes from uh, constituencies, from councillors, county councillors. So the way it's set up is that each local um, councillor and each local authority um, have a vote on each panel and I suppose the way they see that is that they're voted in as councillors and then they're you know they're representational of those local authority areas so y- you have people that have no vote you have the majority of the country have no vote but then you have some people that have several votes so as an elected representative I also get to vote on the Shannon panels and I also have a trinity vote that I can use to vote for myself say so that means I have like, I think, five votes in the Shannon where someone else could have none. So, um, you know, so I suppose like it, it is it, it's seen as undemocratic in that sense. It's seen as people uh, don't have a say or can't participate. A lot of us have been campaigning for like one vote, one person um, for the Shannon um, and also just to widen, I suppose, the democratic franchise. Um, which is probably why, like you were saying, like, like say a narrow view that senators may have or even that society have, if you're not actively participating in how something looks or how um, it operates, it's very hard for you then to, I suppose, really feel like you can invest in what's happening in the Shannon when you can't even get a say in terms of exercising a right to vote in such a space, you know. So and I think that that's where a lot of the disconnect comes from between the Shannon and, and kind of general society. And when the election process is already quite undemocratic, do you think that it's fair that the teacher can then go and nominate 11 senators who weren't elected by anyone? No, I don't. Um, um, I think the 11 nominees is something that would have to change by referendum, if I'm correct. Um, but yeah, no, it's not. I mean, it's it, it like, obviously... It exists, so we do try and encourage what that looks like. Like you have Senator Riley and Flynn, who has come in um, 
under a Taoiseach's nomination and, you know, the first traveller woman to be in the Oireachtas, which is huge and so significant and such a big thing for, for our Irish politics and for, for society in general to be able to become more representative. So obviously it's not ideal, but we've tried to, I suppose, influence the Taoiseachs, uh, this Taoiseach and the last Taoiseach about who he appoints and how they appoint to the Shannon so that they, if they are, if they do have this, what we would see as a very undemocratic, unfair appointment of so many senators, well, then they should at least try and do the right thing if they really did care about, you know, um, some level of independence within the Shannon. The Shannon is supposed to be an independent house. It shouldn't be caught up by party politics and it shouldn't be caught up and um, kind of, it shouldn't mirror the doll. Like it should be um, skills-based, vocational-based and it should be representative of society and it should be independent in its most, you know, the, the closest independence as it can be so that it actually can act as a real check and balance on the doll rather than just um, a rubber stamping on the doll because if you have so many government parties in the Shannad, well then, you know, the ability to be able to really scrutinise and legislate and amend legislation before it goes back to the doll is threatened somewhat if you have a majority of a government in a Shannon. So it should be much more independent. And I suppose that's why we, in, in terms of the Taoiseach nominees, even though we prefer he didn't have those nominees, we have tried to, I suppose, influence um, him doing the, the Taoiseach of the day, doing the right thing with those nominations. But it's not ideal. And if that's what the challenge should be, how do you think we should go about electing senators to fulfil that role? You see, it's 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 even difficult because it's see because local councillors currently vote them in, depending on how well each party is doing at a local electoral level, will dictate what the Shannon looks like. Because if you have a huge portion of Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil or Sinn Féin. Um, their their local councillors are going to get behind those representatives to go to go into the Shannon. Um, is it fair to say that when you extend the franchise, that you won't still get a you know a, a makeup that's not fully independent because parties will still run? Um, so it's hard to know. It's like because like I mean, it's still better that everybody has a democratic vote within the Shannon, but it's hard to know if you truly still end up with that clear independence. Um, and I suppose, you know, it does make it much better and easier though for independence to be able to run um if the Shannon was an open vote, because they know there would be a much wider support based on platform or based on ideology or based on what they think they can bring to the to the to the role rather than it being so hooked on how many like local representatives are from a particular party. So you never feel restricted by the fact that you're an independent senator and that you don't have the backing of a political party? I I don't like I mean obviously restricted in the sense that there's amendments I'd like to win to a legislation that I don't win so I'm restricted in terms of the level of amendments that I put it put in but I mean I've I'm not restricted in the sense that um, I still have a platform and a place to really, really um, scrutinise legislation in in great detail and ultimately impact policy on lots of things that I care about. So obviously there's parts of legislation that go through that I don't agree with, uh, you know, we would lose votes on all the time. But for me to win those, I would have to 
be a member of a party that is a government party and I mean that's not where my politics lie so that's not going to be a reality anyway whether I was an independent or in a party and like unless the political landscape changed where there was more uh, left-leaning parties in government well then I'm always going to come up against that barrier of being able to you know truly amend um, legislation to be fully reflective of my beliefs and the things that I care about and the things that I think should happen. And I think because of the you know the access that we have to the doll in terms of the fact that everybody in the doll is somebody that we the people elected whereas we don't have that with the Sharon so I think we don't always know exactly what the role of a senator is so if you go past how you get into the role what does the daily life of a senator actually look like? So I say that that depends on what senator you ask um so obviously there's the parts of the role that you're supposed to do and then what you bring to it and what you add to it and how I suppose committed you are or active you are in the role and depends and varies across the house um so the primary role is to scrutinize um legislation um so legislation has to go through the doll five times and through the shannon five times through five different stages in each so we do the same ultimately as the doll. We can table legislation. The only thing the Shannon can't do is table um, referendum changes. So we can't table legislation to change the referendum. That has to happen in the doll. And we can't hold up the budget. So there are two things that the Shannon can't do. But other than that, we also legislate. So legislation can originate and start in the Shannon chamber, make its way through there and go into the other house. So outside of that, then, um, we, so I spend a lot of time reading dense policy and legislation, trying to create amendments to that legislation, working with civil society on particular issues who care, who I know are care or are passionate or are experts in that particular field that I may be working on. So as an independent social workload can be pretty big because you don't in a party you have a health spokesperson you have a justice spokesperson and they all are kind of focused on particular remits within the party and they kind of share that out as an independent you're trying to really get through all the all the big ticket items all the big issues and you know make sure that you're not missing anything so you have to be kind of really um committed to going through legislation that maybe wouldn't maybe be your forte or you might not be you know it might not be something that you're um very familiar with so you have to make sure then that you surround well we make sure that we surround ourselves with people that can support us in that space so I work with three other senators which is Eileen Flynn, Alice Mary Higgins and Francis Black in a technical group and we try our best to have a wider possible policy relationship with lots of different NGOs, activist groups, community groups, so that we can um, work together, I suppose, to create amendments to particular pieces of legislation. Um, So that's a huge part of the work. There's also the committee work. So I sit on the Justice Committee and I sit on the Children's Committee, um, which are two big briefs. So as part of those committees, we'd have different work programmes. We would be working on, say, different policy issues or else we'd be working on legislation coming from the Dáil or pre-legislative scrutiny of a piece of legislation and the topics there can just really really vary and they can be really really dense there can be a huge amount of work in developing like reports that then come from the committee and making sure then that 
you know, the committee is being reflective of the issue and has really scrutinized the policy issue that that is at hand. And that can take a huge amount of work as well for a senator, because what you're doing is that report, you want to be able to stand over that report. So you might then table a lot of amendments to the report so that there's some strong policy indications in that going to the department. And then outside of that, um, I would work on lots of different initiatives and support different programs, kind of be strategizing a lot, writing legislation a lot, um, you know, building different things that might not get tabled straight away. Like, so say child maintenance agencies in terms of um, uh, as a, as an, as a anti-poverty measure for, for families who don't receive child maintenance from, from the other parent. And that was, that's in like, I'd be working on that behind the scenes for maybe two or three years because you're building a whole new legislative framework. So there's lots of work that goes behind the scenes, say before I would even table a piece of legislation. And it would be a, probably, t- you know, one, two, three years on different parts of legislation um, and working with all the NGOs and the stakeholders. And you'd have to keep keep drafting, keep drafting. And then you would part of the role as well, I suppose, is making sure you, you bring people along with you in that legislation so that it doesn't fall flat when you do table it. So working closely with departments. And then also I like to try and have as many educational briefings of an issue that I care about so that um, people aren't coming to it for the first time when it comes in the chamber, but they've had an opportunity to engage with me um, either privately or through a public forum about what this legislation really means and the impact that it will have. So there's loads of different strands, I suppose, that, that goes into it. And then there's the public facing stuff. So obviously, you know, I would get called in to maybe talk um, at different conferences or talking in different schools or talk to different community groups. And so there's all that other add on piece that's not necessarily the official part of the role, but really just about how active you are, I suppose, in in, in general. Does that give it an, a, a decent flavour of the work? It does, yeah. Much better understanding now of what kind of goes on day to day, because it's really something that I think people just don't fully understand. It doesn't get the same kind of coverage. And I think it all comes down to the fact that we don't have a say in who is there. And I think if we opened it up to everybody, people would really engage with the Shannad more. But when someone like you is doing so much work to uphold what you think the Shannad should be about, do you ever feel that its integrity is undermined by somebody like Regina Doherty coming in unelected to the Shannad to then be leader of the Shannad when she herself campaigned to abolish it? Yeah, like, I mean, there's there's lots of situations of politicians in the Shannad that have actively campaigned against the Shannad. I think although like you can kind of see the hypocrisy and that type of stuff, you then do just hope that when they are in the job, they will they will do the job and understand the job and actually appreciate what the Shannad does. I think historically the, Sh- the Shannad has been a much sleepier place. Like, I mean, I think in the last two terms, I think the Shannad is gaining more momentum. And but that depends on who's in there. And it shouldn't depend on who's in there. Like it shouldn't depend on really active senators like myself or Alice Mary Higgins to be coming in and being really, you know, um, active um, in that space. But like it should, the integrity of of the Shannon does rely heavily on senators that want to be senators and want to be there because they believe um, in the, the Shannon as an institution and its importance and why its independence is so key to be able to um, 
create good legislation and, and make good decisions. So although I don't really get into like holding it against anyone that's kind of campaigned in the in the past, I think I just I my expectation of them would be that they when they're there, they treat the Shannon with respect and they carry out the work and the functions. And I think, um, yeah, I would hope that anybody that has ended up in the Shannon, maybe not wanting to be there, but have ended up there. Um, have created a new relationship with the Shannon going forward and do now understand its importance um, and why it needs to be protected. Um, so I would just hope that anybody that did campaign and then ended up coming in and staying there, maybe I'm just being overly optimistic and hoping that they do understand, um, I suppose, the, the importance of the institution, why it should be protected and why it also should be much more democratic. And do you think that people can trust that that'll be the case if a lot of people are in there either to use as a stepping stone to become a TD or because their plans to be a TD failed? Do you think that could also undermine people's faith in senators? Yeah, totally, because it's because it gives the impression that the Shannon doesn't matter as if it's some sort of holding space for people. Do you know what I mean? And that's just not reflective of the amount of work that senators do and that their staff do and how much they actually contribute to society. Like, so when there is that constant flow in and out and, you know, Vincent Brown Brown always talks about um, having caps on terms of how, you know, how, how long, um, someone should um, be only allowed to stay in office for. And I do always wonder what would that look like, say, in the Shannon. So say having like, you know, if you if you failed in the election for the doll, well, then maybe there should be a waiting period before you become a senator. Do you know what I mean? Maybe that's not something that sh- could should automatically happen. And I think these are all things that we should definitely be talking about because we do need senators that want to be senators. Because it's yeah, and because it, it does it does undermine, I suppose, the importance and function that it does play, you know. So I think I know the answer to this question based on everything you've said and the fact that it's you know you've put so much work into it. But obviously, you know, you believe that there is a justification for keeping the Shannon around and not abolishing it. a hundred percent. And I think if we do give true reform to the Shannon process, um, I think the rest of society can see why why we need the Shannon too. I mean, everybody, there needs to be a check, check and balance on all institutions. Otherwise, if you ended up with a full massive majority in the doll, there wouldn't ever be any debate on legislation. And it would just literally make its way, railroad it through the doll and then uh, send to the president to be signed into law. So you should always have another house stepping in to slow a process down, to scrutinise the process and to actually have that function is so important for for a function democratic you know state and we but we need to make sure that it's reformed to its truest state so that people can you know have that same faith in the Shannon that I have I suppose or or have that aspiration for the Shannon and that standard for the Shannon and you know some of the most um if you look at the debate sometimes in the Shannon compared to the doll um it's less adversarial and it's much more grounded in the detail of the legislation, in the very finer detail. And that can only ever be a good thing, you know. I know something big that you've been working on yourself the last number of years is a bill to decriminalise drug use here in Ireland. Why do you think that's so important to bring in? 
Well, for me, it's it's just not a justice issue, you know, um, uh, drug use. It's a public it's a public health issue, not drug use. Drug abuse is a public health issue. I mean, a huge, a huge majority of society uses drugs and will never encounter any sort of health related issues. But then there is a portion of society who are in chaotic drug use and it, it very heavily hits uh, communities like mine and Tala and working class communities and the type of drug use um, can vary in those communities. So for me, you don't, you, the justice system in no way supports or helps that situation. It only exasperates it. I know if if, I, if I'm struggling with drug use or if one of my kids were struggling with drug use, I don't want them in front of a judge. I want them in front of somebody that's going to um, support them, facilitate them and um, give them options, give them direction um, if that's what they want. And prison doesn't act as a deterrent for addiction. Um, so for me, the criminalization of people because of drug use is it's also it's also a class issue um, because the majority of people that end up in the prison system um, don't have a leave insert. They're from working class communities and they're more likely to encounter the guards several times a day in comparison to anyone in any other community that has a much more like, say, you know, like a, a higher social class or whatever or, you know, more professional community. But that doesn't mean that drug use doesn't exist there. So the actual implementation of the law itself is also unfair and unjust. And to end up with a conviction um, for personal drug use, even if you did enter recovery at any stage, the the knock-on effect in terms of having been in prison can also um, get in the way in, in terms of your future ability to be able to travel to be able to go to America to be able to volunteer to be able to study certain degrees so it actually just reinforces class inequality um, and it does nothing to actually um, destigmatize drug use and um, you know it, 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 we're just we're using the justice system to try and just stifle off a load of people in in a particular direction and it doesn't actually it doesn't actually achieve anything. Do you think that goes beyond drug use, that the law is enforced far more heavily on working class people than it is on middle class people? Totally. Like, I mean, I leave my house and I see several guard cars in any given day, um, you know, doing stops and search. You look for crime, you're going to find crime. The thing is, uh, geographically and, and demographically, the guards are more geared towards being in communities where the criminality for them is is easier to see like you know what I mean but there's crime in all communities there's like there's drug abuse in all communities it might look a little bit different um in each space but it's there you know and white collar crime and you know tax fraud all of these things are so are, are so um in so deep rooted in 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 and uh, throughout um, the middle to upper classes, but it goes so hidden. And, you know, we don't see the same amount of people being held accountable for their actions, uh, the higher up in society that they are. And, you know, you'd have to even wonder, like, so when you're when you're trying to measure morality or you're trying to measure accountability, if you're from a community that has a high amount of deprivation um, or a huge amount of drug use or violence and then you're engaging in criminality you know the amount of external factors that affect your decision making in that scenario is really big but if you're from uh, an affluent family with a professional background lots of access to things 
I think you should be even held more accountable for your actions because actually your external you're making much more of a decision at that stage to 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 engage in criminal activity or to engage in fraud or to engage in you know whatever white collar crime and I think those two scenarios look very different yet it's always the most vulnerable that pay for crime um in 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 many societies but most definitely in ours as well do you think that that's part of the reason why Drew Harris, the Garda Commissioner, is so opposed to the decriminalisation of drug use? I, I've no idea. I just, they're like, to, it, it, I always find it amusing why, they, first of all, they don't want to give up their ability to stop and search. Like, I mean, their figures, to you know, like statistics matter in the justice system, arrests matter in the justice system, appearing to be doing something and to tackle crime matters and um, matters to them. I find it extremely mad. I don't even know what other word to say that people would try and stand over prohibition when literally drug use, we've one of the highest overdose rates that 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 persists even while drugs are criminalized. So you're literally having people that say they, they, they understand the justice system or say they've committed to justice standing over a completely failed piece of legislation in terms of addressing any sort of social issues. And you'd have to wonder why is that? And is it because they actually do stigmatize against drug users? They do stigmatize against people from minorities. They do stigmatize and they pretend that they just don't think decriminalization will work or people will be used in terms of like, you know, the, the drug trade and all of this. And none of that is accurate and none of it is based in any sort of research or science. And actually the research and science is completely against people that argue against decriminalization. So you'd have to really wonder what is their deep rooted issue with people who use drugs? Because you can't, there's no way it's separated from that. Because I believe that people do want to see people who use drugs, who look different to them, who are struggling, who are living in poverty. Uh, they do want they do want to criminalize them, you know, because they don't want to see them as normal. They want to just try and remove, remove them. And yeah, they have some kind of false idea that, you know, abstinence is possible. Like, I mean, there's no society in the whole world that is abstinent from drug use. But yet we keep trying to push abstinence on people like, you know, like it's the the the, the answer to things. And it's not. Some people can, will use drugs till the day they die. But it's about how do we create scenarios where they're causing the least amount of harm to themselves while they use drugs till the day that they die. So if pushing abstinence and prohibition isn't how you reduce drug abuse, how do you propose that we do that? So... Even decriminalization doesn't reduce, um, you know, overall, it. that's not the intention of it. So even though ideally I could say my intention is to reduce drug use. It's not really like, of course, I want that to be like a knock on effect. But my my aim and agenda is always to reduce the amount of stigma and harm caused to people. So my aim is to reduce poverty. My aim is to reduce um, the, the abuse and violence that people endure. Everything that comes before the drug use is what we need to actually be saying that we want to address. We want people to have a safe home. 
We want people to be able to flourish in their community. And we want people making choices about their drug use from a safe foundation, not making a choice about drug use because they are self-medicating or because they're hurt or because they feel broken or because they feel lost or because they feel like they've no future ahead of them. That's the type of drug use that I want to address but I don't want to focus on the person's drug use to do it I want to focus on the societal failings that have created the situation where people feel like they want to take drugs to completely remove themselves from the reality of their own lives. Do you think that any of this could be helped if we increased funding for education in working class areas? Yeah well I think it's a multi-sectoral multi-departmental thing I think um, everything every Every home needs to be invested in. Every young person needs to have the support and the finance follow them. Uh, you know, it, the, the money it takes to to keep legal aid going and prisons going, like if you were to invest that in each individual child. And um, we need to, we need to, people think it's always about like investing at like the early education stage. But I think we need to continue to see family as full units because we need to not only we need to not only invest in kids at two and three and four and then throughout the education system but we need to be investing equally in their parents so that their parents can support the progression of that young people through each stage so for me the investment needs to be holistic it needs to be it needs to be based on the family and then obviously the family placed within the community so education home living wage you know, access to university that's not based on points. Um, people should have every opportunity at every stage of their life to engage in education free of barriers. Um, I mean, if I had my way, I'd be paying people a living wage to go to university from working class communities. And I would do that for several generations until there's a much larger portion of people from working class communities in toward level education. But because of poverty, because of needing to pay bills, because of just needing a job, people can't go back to education. They can't, even as mature students or as single mothers, they won't be able to afford childcare. So there's all of that. So I would invest in those people and remove every single barrier for as many generations as you need to until you have a greater effect long term, I suppose, on the system overall. And if you get rid of using points to get into university, how do you think we should measure people's ability to get into university? Well, you, you have a mixture. Um, obviously, exams do sue some people. So having a mixture and having a choice in education, not everybody, um, not everybody, we know not everybody learns the same. Um, I don't learn by just listening to somebody talk on a podium at me for an hour. I'm much more of a practical learner. Um, I'm visual um I'm you know there, there's lots of different things about how I engage with education that wouldn't be the same as somebody else so for me it's about removing the points as the kind of main way like but have an option and choice about how people uh you know progress through the education system it doesn't all need to be in the school setting you can have community education spaces you can be working towards continuous assessment you can be working towards just engagement in education being what you measure so if you're in sixth year and you're engaging in education actively and willingly well then you should be able to engage in college actively and willingly but not be getting refused access because you didn't get 3% more on your maths than you needed. 
but yet you are a committed person who wants to engage in education. So we need to be listening to people saying they want to go on to university rather than measuring some sort of metric outcome of an exam to say that they're able or not able, you know. And I know that that relies then on obviously increased amount of numbers of college places and making sure the capacity is there. But at the end of the day, if you want to go to college, there should be a way for you to go to college. End of story, regardless of exams. And do you think that if we're making education fairer to everyone and trying to get everyone kind of on a level playing field do you think that there's a place for private schools in that system not really no like I mean there's no need for a private school we all should be receiving the same educational standards Um, it, it just re- it reinforces inequality again it's if you can pay you're going to get some better level of education which means we're accepting a lesser level of education for a huge portion of society because they can't pay so for me, the private school system, um, you know, it just I just I just don't think I think we I think it even helps us better address, you know, social capital and cultural capital. If we're all in the same classrooms together, we're learning together, we're understanding each other. We're not creating those clear, defined lines between those who have and those who have not. And I think even as a society um, we need to be learning from each other and from our different cultural black backgrounds and I think even our tolerance and understanding of different types of people can only come if we stop separating people based on um you know what they have and what they can can access through finance. How efficient do you think the Department of Higher Education have been in opening up university education to more people given that we're now one year into its existence? Um, well, I mean, I think it's probably too soon and I, I'd have to be honest and say I haven't the last year I've been very focused on different um, initiatives uh, and I haven't had a huge amount of gate engagement with the higher education um, department as is. I mean, the most kind of uh, traffic that's coming to me now is, I suppose, the the, the the fact that there's a lot of people who went on P- PUP and now can't access their SUSE grant this year because they were on a social welfare payment. So, you know, I think um, in an overall setting, I've no idea where we are in opening up. I think um, in terms of opening up spaces and places for people from different types of backgrounds. But right now we're at threat of actually removing a load of those people who relied on Susie because we haven't found a solution that PUP doesn't get means tested because it is a social welfare payment and is now actually forcing people out of the university sector. I think that's the stuff that's been on more on my radar at the minute is not how much they're managing to open it up, but how much we're at risk of actually rejecting people. On Susie already is if such an arbitrary, blunt tool in terms of if you go over slightly, you know, like, so for me, um, the big, the best thing that, that, the higher education sector can do I suppose right at this minute is to actually address the issues with Susie and how many people um are losing out on supports um which most people that will need those supports are from diverse backgrounds or from working class backgrounds who rely on Susie so for me the the, the you know addressing the Susie system is really important right now do you think that we need to kind of change the application process so it's no longer a one size fits all application where everybody answers the same question? Do you think it should reflect more on your your own specific situation? Yeah, I think if you're the first person, I think there should be 
less of a, I don't know if it's just an algorithm that it goes through or whether there's humans actually engaging with the material that's in it, but it needs to be much more flexible. I think if you're from a working class community, but say if you're going over the limit of your home, it shouldn't be only based on your financial, it should be based on your social and cultural capital. If you're from a school that doesn't have a high rate and then you go over a high rate going like progression, but then say your your mother is a, your hair, a hairdresser and your dad's a taxi man. So there's two incomes coming into the family and it slightly, slightly puts you over. But every single thing else about your experience has been a working class experience. It's been an, an experience of barriers. You've you've got yourself through a school where maybe they struggle to get people right to leave insert and then progression on to the end. And I think all those factors matter Um so much more than just looking at a financial income and using that as the determinant of whether you need support or not to get through university. And what do you think the benefits are to society if we get more and more people into university every year? It's just a more fair and equitable system. Like, I mean, obviously university is not the answer for everyone. I mean, any type of education anywhere um, on a personal level, I think education um, empowers us as individuals to be able to advocate for ourselves and engage critically with material and critically with society. And I think even looking now, um, for me, I'm looking at the importance of education in terms of like misinformation, in terms of, uh, you know, protests and polarization and racism and all these big subjects um, that some people have never thought about, but now it's very much prevalent and COVID has obviously escalated that. So for me, like you could talk about education being important in terms of the economics of society, which obviously is true, but on a much more philosophical level, we need to be creating young people that can engage critically with material and respectively and understand and reason through an article and information and have research skills and know what a peer reviewed article is versus some sort of misinformation online. So I just think on a human societal level, the more people we um, in secondary school as well actually teach to engage with society in that meaningful way, I think um, yeah, I think we'll have a much more inclusive society. And that, I think, is very important for me in terms of, of education and educational attainment. So it seems like all of your plans are very much long term and long term solutions. You're not really looking at the short term. So if we're looking at the long term for how you want to achieve those, how do you see that going? Do you see yourself staying in the Shannon or do you see yourself running for other offices? Yeah, like, I mean, it's ha- I'm. we only had an election last year. So, like, I mean, right now, um the Shannon is um, where I want to be. Um, it allows me to take that macro look, I think, um, and that long-term look. Um, I think, even though it's not that I'd say I, I would never run for the doll, it doesn't feel like a calling in me to run for the doll. Um, but I would evaluate that, I suppose, each and every time if I thought I wasn't having an effect or an impact and that if I needed to, you know, change my tact a little bit although I you know if I was in the doll I'd be quite concerned that my my work would become much more um geographically focused and right now it's not necessarily geographic it's very caught up in class and addiction and all those things but I'm not I don't feel um like I don't have to run clinics and do that daily stuff with people and I can keep focusing on the policy stuff 
And I think that that's what I prefer to do is to try and focus on the policy initiatives and try and raise awareness. So the Shannon is where I'm happiest at right now and where I feel I can still be effective. I'm not necessarily someone that feels that politics is the only place for me to affect change. So if a different opportunity came up elsewhere, obviously I would consider that as well if it was working on and advocating for the issues that I care about. Do you ever see yourself running for the role of president? Your name is kind of thrown around a lot in terms of diversifying the office, you know, to have a much younger person in, a voice for working class people, another woman. Do you ever see yourself going down that route? Yeah, like I would, I would consider it. Um, it's not something I'm actively thinking about right now. I wouldn't rule it out. I think nobody, um, I think, I think I never should send that message to anyone that we should automatically rule ourselves out of something, I suppose, so important and so significant. Um it would be a, a decision that would have to be measured based on what I can do in the role and achieve in the role. And I'm quite active um, at the minute. And although we have like a president now, that's amazing, I suppose, a shape in the narrative of the country and shape in the, like a narr- narrative of an inclusive society, I would just be concerned at this point that um, I'm still at a stage, I suppose, where I'm extremely opinionated and active on issues and I still want to be able to see many of those make their way through all stages of the doll, all the stuff that I'm working on. And I would I'm much more focused at the minute on making achieving that to actually have the legislation that I wrote written into law, like the spent convictions one that's about to go to the doll has already made its way fully through the challenge. So at the minute I'm very focused on that, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out anything. I would always measure it based on how effective I can be. And do you see yourself, do you see yourself staying as an independent or can you see yourself ever joining a political party? No, I I can't ever see myself joining a political party. And what's, what's going to stop you, do you think? What would stop me? What would stop you from joining a political party? Uh, I think they all begin to mean nothing in the end. Um, Like, I'm, I'm very independently minded. I... I don't agree with everything that parties always do. I couldn't imagine voting um, for something that I wasn't overly keen on. Um, I and I don't think I would be like take one for the team kind of person. Um, yeah, I just I'm I'm I much prefer to be independent and to be able to step in and out of all the different party spaces and under independent blocks and be able to work collaboratively and collectively across all political spectrums. You're obviously a very left-wing politician, but but since you're not part of any political party, it's kind of harder for people to know, do you follow any particular ideology? Like I know if I look at somebody in the Social Democrats, they're a Social Democrat. If I look at somebody in Solidarity, People Before Profit, I know they're a socialist. Do you follow either one of those ideologies or do you just follow whatever causes you believe in? I'm very issue based. Uh, I suppose it's similar to religion and spirituality for me. I take I take what I can learn from each space and and, and, and different. Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm I'm more left wing, but I'm very focused on issues and people and I tend not to place myself into a into an ideology. I'm sure lots of others have me very much p- pigeonholed into ideologies, but it's not. No, I just yeah. I spoke just to Mick Barry t- from Solidarity uh, a few weeks ago on this podcast, and he spoke about some of the same issues that you spoke about. And 
he put a lot of the cause of those issues down to capitalism. Do you agree with that or do you think there are other causes at play? Yeah, no, like, I mean, I mean, the roots of capitalism if, and, and effectively does shape and mould, um, you know, so much of, I suppose, what we see, especially in terms of housing and, and lots of different things. So I do, I do, um, I, I do uh, agree in terms of how we can restructure capitalism in terms of, you know, reducing its impact, I think you know, it's hard, like, can we end capitalism is a whole other big, big question, you know, but I think even within a capitalist system, we need to be able to make better decisions. Um, And it's very hard if you're, say, in Ireland, and you're fighting within an institution in a political system, but they're in this global capitalistic system. And it's like, how do we begin to even advocate as politicians or as left wing people or people who do see, do know and understand that capitalism is obviously, you know, it's destroying the planet in so many, in so many different ways. But I think then from the capitalistic kind of framework, then you obviously do have other things at play. But I would say capitalism is the umbrella of, of that, you know, Um, and yeah, but we do need we do need leaders and world leaders to make better decision decisions within that capitalist structure, as opposed to will we get world leaders to dismantle capitalism? I'm not sure. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. Thanks so much for talking to me today, Lynn. I think you've really kind of shone a light on the important work that senators like yourself are doing. Thank you.